Some organisations face negligible risk, but for others, the risks may be significant and potentially catastrophic. This is a quote from the Australian National Audit Office. It's a sentence that could be applied to a lot of disruptive technology, smartphones, the internet, artificial intelligence. But it's a quote that's actually from the year 1998, when the world was ramping up to tackle a huge tech threat, the Y2K bug. That's the year 2000 bug and the fear that computers wouldn't be able to handle the year 2000 and instead revert back to 1900 causing global chaos, which, as we know, turned out to be a giant waste of everyone's time and money. But like I said, this quote could be attributed to any type of disruptive tech and especially the next big computer thing we're all worried about, quantum computers. Enter the Y2Q fear, years to quantum. Will Y2Q be a Y2K, or are our fears of the post-quantum computer world justified? Hi, this is Think Digital Futures. I'm Ellen Leibeter. I'm Shane Anderson. And today you're going to hear all about the post-quantum age and two of the challenges we'll face if and when we manage to build a quantum computer. The quantum computer is the new space race, with researchers and companies all over the world working on building one. One researcher has said there is a 1 in 7 chance we'll hit Y2Q by 2026, rising to a 1 in 2 chance by 2031. So it's likely we won't see a quantum computer for at least another decade, but if there's one thing we're big on in this show, it's never underestimate the tech. But before we go any further, you should know that we have already covered quantum computing on the show before. If you want to get your head around the theory behind quantum computers, scroll down your podcast feed to the third ever episode of Think Digital Futures. We've covered this topic previously on the show. Here's a refresher on the capabilities of quantum computers, thanks to previous host Lawrence Bull. Imagine it's Mother's Day. If you're anything like me, you've left buying a gift till the last minute. It's a Sunday, a lot of the shops are closed, but you know there's a florist nearby. But the place that sells the chocolates she likes is in the opposite direction. You also need to pick up groceries before the supermarket closes, and that's in another part of town. And you're out of cash, so you need to go to an ATM. That's five stops. The shops are about to close. No worries, you can probably work out the quickest route, get it all done in time. But then you think... Uh, I've got to make some other sops too. Wine, grandma, petrol, other grandma, haircut. I've got to buy some olive dip. If you need to make 10 stops, that's nearly 400,000 potential routes. You're going to need a computer. Well, it turns out computers find this confusing too. Once you reach 21 stops, even the world's most powerful supercomputer will take more than 300 years to compute the shortest path. At just 25 stops, that supercomputer will take... The age of the universe. But a quantum computer will solve that problem in about 14 minutes, and you'll be back in your mum's good books before you know it. So quantum computers have the ability to process vast amounts of information very, very quickly. But just remember, they probably won't make it quicker for you to stream Netflix. Quantum computers will be used to perform specific types of calculations for specific problems. What makes a quantum computer different is the way it interprets information. Currently, your computer thinks in ones and zeros. This is known as binary language. The key word there being and. Your computer can only interpret a one or a zero, 
not both at the same time. And this makes some computer processes slow, at least compared to what a quantum computer can do. The thing with computers is that at any one time, if you feed an instruction on the chip, it can either be a one or a zero. So instructions almost a sequential, takes time. Professor Michael Blumenstein is the head of the School of Software in the Faculty of Engineering and Information Technology at the University of Technology, Sydney. A computer handles ones and zeros. So the computer reads those instructions to you know, execute something. They can execute anything from complex programs like running uh, you know, an operating system environment like Windows or, or Apple iOS or to, to simple things like you know, apps and games, right? The difference with a quantum computer is that it can understand ones and zeros at the same time, what's known as a superposition. So it can think in ones, zeros, or a one and a zero. So the big blow away thing that quantum computing is about, because it uses the principles of quantum mechanics, it, it actually takes things in a way that actually you can create a computer that can interpret these instructions simultaneously. So ones and zeros can be you know, interpreted at the same time. And that's pretty much the dummy's guide to how a quantum computer can solve complex problems quickly. Now, you can imagine that sounds like, oh, well, so we're just doubling the speed. No, the effect is actually uh, quite significant. If you can build a quantum computer that can take these instructions over a longer period of time with this simultaneous treatment of a one and zero together, then you're actually accelerating the speed of computation by a margin that's significant. Assuming you manage to build it, of course. And this is where we pull out our crystal ball, because assuming we do manage to build one of these things, there is a whole lot of extra stuff we have to think about. Let's go back to when computers were first developed. So when we talk tech, we're talking about two parts, the software and the hardware. The hardware is the physical device, for example, your phone. The software is the collection of code installed on your phone that allows it to run an operating system and all your favourite apps. When computers were first developed, the software and hardware came as a package deal, which limited what you could do. I mean, basically what what would happen is that instead of, say, turning on a machine or a chip and then loading some software on top of it, it would actually be coupled already in the hardware. So in other words, it would probably have only performed one function and that's it. And one example of that, but it's not a very good example, is probably how you manufactured a game into what what used to be called, you know, the Atari console. I don't know if anyone even remembers that, but the, these are consoles where you you put a cartridge in, you're, you're switching, uh, putting in a piece of hardware into another piece of hardware, and it's running, but it's hard coded. And this is what not to do with quantum computers, because it limits the functionality of the device. Imagine if you couldn't update the apps on your phone every few weeks at the click of a button, but instead you had to wait for a new handset. Because the problem of not separating is that you bring down the functionality. Um, so I suspect the many quantum computing hardware developments around the world, some of it is you know, hard coding stuff, and that's for speed, and it's for you know, coming up with an, an, an experiment that will bring you some sort of solution. But at the end of the day, if we want to be creating a quantum computer that can do all the things that we have enjoyed now of our personal computers are doing, we need that software layer to actually execute that. Here's where Michael and his colleagues come in. They're trying to write software for a computer that doesn't exist yet. So when the quantum computer does exist, we don't have to waste years trying to create the functions we've come to expect from our digital devices. 
So what you do, you have to do it through simulation. You have to say, look, we know the principles behind how to create this hardware. Okay, we know how we will go about, you know, completing a quantum computer that's built for more um, general purpose. Okay, we know how how that will look. So what you do is you infer, you know, the future. Literally, what we're doing is we're saying we know the principles. Let's just extrapolate those principles and let's create a simulation environment of how the software will function on this, you know, soon-to-be-created general quantum hardware environment. They're, they're simulating the programming environment to be able to be ready to port into the hardware once it's completed. Which, when you think about it, is mind-bending stuff. You're essentially creating a new language for a quantum computer to understand human instructions. So remember, computers work in ones and zeros, and obviously our brains don't work like that. So we've created languages that allow us to tell computers what to do in a more familiar language, and these go through yet another program that turns those commands into ones and zeros for the computer to understand. And these computer languages are the same as any other language. They've evolved over time. Um, literally, you know, people were, you know, they evolved over time. So when you, um, I suppose the, the closest example that I can say is a skip from binary coding, ones and zeros, the leap to, to what used to be called assembler or assembly language. And, you know, ones and zeros, if, if you're a human trying to interpret ones and zeros into creating something that is meaningful, it's really hard. I remember doing that in year seven maths i think yeah trying to learn that and it was yeah it just didn't it didn't compute and <laughs> the that's a good word to use didn't compute because what probably you were doing was converting ones and zeros into numbers or yeah exactly, into hexadecimal exactly into you know decimal whatever but you imagine if you're trying to code you know a computer or or a chip or something using ones and zeros for make it to, to make it execute something, you know, instructions one by one, really difficult because instructions in your mind are something else. They're human language. Um, and in a computer, you just have to go down to that basis level. So what happened was it evolved into, you know, a next generation, which was, you know, assembly language. And that used um, symbols and, you know, it got into closer understandable acronyms and mnemonics to be able to program. And, you know, I bet that in that generation, the people looked at the difference between ones and zeros and using mnemonics and, and, and abbreviations, and they go, even though there were three letters and still difficult to interpret, and they go, wow, this is really, this is a huge jump. The difficulty now is creating a language that we as humans can understand and that a quantum computer can understand that doesn't hinder the ability of the computer to execute these high-level functions. So I'm already expected to know how to code a computer because it's the future work skill. And now I'm going to be expected to know how to code a quantum computer as well. I don't see that happening. Well, you might actually be able to get away with it. Michael reckons they're going to do a drag and drop situation for quantum software. They have taken some of the better properties of you know some of the existing languages to create um, like a, a pseudo quantum language as as an intermediate step just like any language and i've just mentioned the evolution from ones and zeros to assembly you know the evolution that will take place with quantum software will be of a similar ilk so we we need to start in a base that's familiar and yes it is constrained right now but that's also we're also constrained because we don't even have a, a real 
universal quantum computer yet. You know, so we're already constraining that too. I mean, what we have to do is we, we have to go through the process of evolution. We have to you know, use what we're, we're accustomed to and then grow as the problems grow and as the hardware you know, that we aspire to complete grows. So in other words, in a sense, we're, we're co-evolving you know, um, what, what our, our aspirations are with the, with the hardware and how we want to evolve the software. Now, you know, that, what that means is that over time, we will end up with something very powerful, just like we have now on standard computers. So I'm already expected to know how to code a computer because it's the future work skill. And now I'm going to be expected to know how to code a quantum computer as well. I don't see that happening. Well, you might actually be able to get away with it. Michael reckons they're going to do a drag and drop situation for quantum coding. Now, I would argue that to understand the underpinning aspects of quantum physics in quantum software coding, you do seem to be needing even a higher level of understanding from an educational uh, point of view. That's not a bad thing because at the end of the day, it means that, you know, there are more people who are interested in STEM and, and you know, really advancing knowledge and, you know, contributing to the future society that we're, we're probably going to have. But what I've seen in some of the other people that have been doing quantum software, you know, at the fringes of it in the commercial sense, for example, IBM, they're trying to almost, if, if I interpret it correctly, provide like a drag and drop scenario for you to code in, in the quantum space a little bit more easily. So just like coding in the normal sense, has become easier over time. I think there are you know, software packages that will become available that will enable people to not have to know what's going on exactly under the hood to actually do the coding of it. If you had told me 12 months ago I could quantum code in my lifetime, I would not have believed you. Well, that's the good news. After the break, how quantum computers could Y2K us. Well, that's if we're not prepared. Would you take medical advice from a celebrity chef? What is multi-drug resistance? What does your gut say about your mental health? Where did the anti-vaccination movement come from? Think Health, the show on 2SER where we look at the biggest health concerns of today, decrypt all that medical jargon and talk to the people who are trying to solve these problems. Think Health is available on your favourite podcast app. Just search for Think Health and subscribe. On Think Digital Futures, we're discussing how quantum computers pose a series of challenges to our tech world. You just heard how we need to be on the front foot when it comes to building software for quantum computers. But the problem with this new tech is what happens if it gets into the wrong hands. If quantum computers can work out which is the quickest route to get you from A to B with 25 stops in between, they can also decode encrypted data. Think your emails, text messages, health records, even credit cards. A lot of this material is stored online and it's encrypted even if you don't know it. Again, we need to understand how encryption works on our current computers to understand how it can be manipulated by quantum computers. Encryption is sending secret coded messages. There are a range of encryption ciphers, as we call them, different ways of making codes that are available to us today. Vikram Sharma is the founder and CEO of Quintessence Labs. But a typical method is where the two parties that are wishing to exchange information each have a, a copy of what we call an encryption key. This 
key is used to take the data that you want to send between the two parties, then this, this encryption key is put into one of the inputs of a mathematical process. It's like taking the key, putting your data along with it into a blender and jumbling the two together to give you something that's encrypted or garbled at the output. Now when they receive it, they need either a matching key or a key that's in some way related to the one that you've used to encrypt to then decrypt or unjumble that data to get it back in a way that they can interpret and that's useful to them. So take passwords, for example. Your password to your bank account might be the word tree. But after you type it into the browser, the computer just sees it as a series of numbers. To encrypt it, take that number and multiply it by another series of numbers. So tree might be interpreted by a computer as 199, and that's your encryption key. And say your bank's encryption key is 197. When you multiply those two numbers together, you get 39,203. And that's the garbled output that Vikram was talking about. If anyone found that garbled number, it would take them an extremely long time to work out what two numbers created it. You'd have to try so many combinations of numbers to work out the correct keys, if you like, to unlock your bank account. Obviously, 39,203 isn't that big of a number. When we're talking about encryption, we're actually talking about much longer strings of numbers, multiplied by even larger numbers, and which creates an even bigger number, and that takes a much longer time to crack. One of the main types of encryption we use is called RSA encryption. It's used a lot in e-commerce, and for the moment, it's pretty good at protecting your data. And by knowing this very large number, which is the basis of the public key, you cannot, if you don't know the two individual numbers that were multiplied in the first instance, you cannot in any reasonable period of time mathematically work out those two constituent prime numbers. On our computers, even supercomputers today, depending on what size of RSA key you're using, the expectation is it would take several thousand years. But it's already been theorised that RSA encryption can be broken with a quantum computer. However, a gentleman called Peter Shaw in 1996 has given us this algorithm that gives us the ability to factorise this large number into its two constituent primes very rapidly. So that would mean that the RSA mechanism that we've been relying on for at least a couple of decades, or in fact a bit more than that, to secure our commercial transactions would no longer be adequate because um, potential um, adversaries, people who want to monetize the information that you're exchanging, would be able to break that particular code and get access to the information that you're exchanging. So it's not exactly comforting knowing we could release something out into the world that, put in the wrong hands, could steal all your personal information. As we look into the next five to ten years, we're likely to see the advent of quantum computers. And quantum computers have an ability through their tremendously increased parallelism to be able to undo some of the mathematics that's used to protect certain types of ciphers that we use today. So we need to be thinking about mathematical methods or, or encryption methods which are in some way immune 
to the advent of vastly greater computational capability that will arise in the next five to ten years. Researchers are now looking at quantum-resistant encryption to protect your data from evil villains. And the idea is that this would work on your current computer, so no need to upgrade to a quantum computer just yet. Although if quantum computers do penetrate the market and we all have one in our homes, the potential for encryption goes the other way. After all, it's easier to encrypt something than decrypt it, and quantum computers will provide a new level of protection. And in quantum key distribution, what you do is you take the random numbers, which will form a code eventually, and you imprint them onto, uh, in our case, on a, a highly tuned laser. And if I'm sending them to you, Ellen, over, let's say, an optic fiber, much like the fibers we use today in NBN, for example, because those codes are imprinted right at the quantum level, the most minute level of nature, any hacker, if you like, that tries to intercept these codes while they're in transit to you, their very act of looking at it will change the codes that I've sent you. Because that's what happens at the quantum level. If you look at something, by the laws of quantum physics, you change it. So you and I would know that somebody's looked at this, this code that I've been sending you. However, once we've established that there has been no eavesdropping, then you and I can proceed to make a code based on the numbers we've exchanged, which can then be used to exchange information absolutely securely. And we, we can know with absolute certainty by the laws of physics that the code that you and I have just shared is now absolutely secure. We're about to see a huge revolution in computing power. Vikram calls it the quantum revolution. We're on the cusp of a second quantum revolution. You know, the first occurred in the 60s when we invented the transistor. And I think the thought at that time was that, you know, we'd probably have a global demand of five computers. But of course, over the last 50 years, we can clearly see some of our largest companies in the world today are, are now leveraging that discovery of, of the transistor. But today we stand on the cusp of being able to create quantum effects that don't naturally exist. And as a result of that, I think you're gonna see abilities in quantum computing, in security, in sensing and imaging, which over the, the next five to 10 years are going to bring about step change in, in many fields. I think it's safe to say we've got a bit of runway to prep for Y2Q and we'll have quantum-resistant encryption well before we have quantum computers. You know what? I think I might have enough time to swat up on all that quantum physics stuff. Don't we have a copy of Quantum Physics for Babies lying around here somewhere? You've been listening to Think Digital Futures. I'm Ellen Leibader. I'm Shane Anderson. This show is supported by 2SER and the University of Technology, Sydney. Bye for now.